0: Welcome to the Ministry of Faith Community Church of Indianapolis. We pray this message by Pastor John Roberts is a blessing to you. To learn more about Faith Community Church, please visit us at FCCIndianapolis.com. The first verse I want to look at is where we started four weeks ago, uh, or excuse me, I guess it was five weeks ago, uh, Proverbs 18.21, which Solomon says very clearly, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. The loving is, do you love death, do you love life? And, and part of the problem with that is sometimes death is deceptive. You don't realize you're speaking words of death. You're just you, The New Testament would say you're speaking words of unbelief. And it's, it's been many months ago, I, I, I devoted an entire sermon on the difference between faith and unbelief. And if you really come down to it, the only difference between faith and unbelief, because unbelief literally, faith in, in in the Greek is pistis or pisteo, depending on which form, whether it's a noun or a verb. And unbelief is apisto. It's the word for faith with a negative in front of it. So it's, it really, could would I think, would be better translated, at least it strikes my mind better, to, to translate that negative faith rather than unbelief. The reason being, your faith always has to have an object. And it's part of the problem as, as Christians and just as people in general. Uh, Gina and I got into a big discussion yesterday. Um, she, her birthday was about a month ago, and, and she got a book from someone, and it was by um, Oprah Oprah Winfrey, and it's on, on spiritual things, and, and Gina, kind she was looking at it with a little suspicion, and she said, is she saved? And I, I looked at her and said, probably not, no, because I have heard her say, and she challenged a lady in her audience one day, who said Jesus is the only way, and Oprah argued with her vehemently that, no, Jesus is a way. He's one of many ways to get to the Father. And that totally contradicts the Bible. Jesus is the only way. But, and this is why I brought that up, people will look at her and say, well, she's spiritual, she has faith. Well, of course she has faith. question is, where is her faith directed? Her faith is directed in a generality, and a principle of, well, I believe in God, James had an answer for that. He said, You believe there's one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. Believing that there is a God, believing that there is a Father and that His Son is Jesus, and believing that Jesus is the only way will still earn you to hell, a a trip to hell, until you surrender to Him. It's not believing in Jesus it's surrendering your life to him and declaring that his life is your life and your life is his life that's how you get born again but we have sometimes we we don't see death as true death we see it as well i'm 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 having faith i'm believing for this well what's your proof Hebrews chapter 11 says that, that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Evidence means you've got some proof. Where's my proof that what I say is going to happen in my life is going to happen? When I was unsaved and I said, Jesus, I trust you. I believe that you are the Son of God and I commit my life to you and I want you to come and be a part of me and I want to be a part of you. Now, I was eight years old. It wasn't nearly that sophisticated. I just said, Jesus, come into my heart. That was it. You know. It doesn't take a lot of theology to get saved. But when that happened, how did it happen? Because someone told me the truth and I saw him, but I surrendered to him. That's the difference. You can be deceived and think that what is darkness is actually light. But it all comes down to our, our mouths. He says it right there. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Let's go um, to James chapter 3. Let me make this general point. Before that, where we are in our lives, how your life is right now, is the result of the words that we've spoken in the past and what we've believed in the past. Whether it was unbelief, which is putting faith in things besides what God's word says, negative faith is believing. Having faith, but you're believing in the wrong thing. I I I get up this morning, and my head hurts. I got the sweats. My throat hurts, and you know, and this literally didn't happen. I'm using this as an example. And I crawl out of bed. I go in. I look in the bathroom. I just feel you know, it's like somebody shoot me. I'm I'm sick, and I turn to Gina and I look at her and I say, I'm sick. I'm sick. Well, what am I doing? I'm looking at my circumstances and declaring that my circumstances are actually how I am. Well, if you got a fever and you're sweating and you feel cruddy, aren't you really sick? Well, I have those are facts about the condition of my body at that moment. But if I agree with those conditions, I've just put my faith that this is where I'm going to stay. If I go to the Word, we just read it earlier, Psalm 103, one of His benefits is that He heals all of our sicknesses. So my faith has to be in that Word, and I look at myself and I say, Body, you're going to have to get in line with the Word. I don't deny that I have a fever, I don't deny that I feel cruddy, I don't deny that my throat hurts, I don't deny any of my symptoms. But I do deny their right to be in my body and to enforce themselves on me and stay as long as they like. And so I have to take my words and start saying, no, God says that I am healed. God says that my body stands in health, perfect health, top to bottom. And I have, and now the war's on. And I have to do warfare with my words. And if, I'll give you Gina and my, our, our experience through the years. What, how we saw this play out in our lives. When our kids were little, <clears throat> we finally got a hold of the truth that God has already healed us. He took care of healing at the cross. When we got that revelation, we started declaring our kids would wake up and they wouldn't feel well. We'd start declaring that they were healed. Now, I wasn't so foolish to not seek medical help for my kids, or if they had a fever, I'd give them Tylenol, whatever the doctor said, to make them feel better. I'm not going to make my kids suffer while I learn how to stand in faith and see their healing come about. I'm willing to suffer and just stand and believe God to see things change, but I'm not going to make my children feel bad and allow them to feel bad while I'm learning. But what we saw is when we first started doing that, we didn't see a lot of change immediately. But then as months and years went on, we would, would see flu season would come, come, and one of us, all of us, some of us would get the flu, and instead of lasting three weeks, it'd last three days. We'd get sick, we'd start declaring, and it would be gone Quickly. We couldn't keep it from coming in at all, but we saw quicker recovery all the time. And we, we, we started shortening that period. We saw some things, they just don't come anymore. They just, that, that's something that used to plague us, it doesn't plague us anymore. Occasionally it'll try to rear its head, and when it does, if we're smart and we catch it, because sometimes you don't recognize that it's there until it gets a good head of steam, then you go to the Word and you say, no, wait a minute, stop. You used to have a a hold on me, but you don't have that hold anymore. You can't come do this. No. We settled this ages ago. But if we don't say it, we're never going to see it. Proof of it, James 3. We're going to start in verse 1. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man. Better translation would be, he is a mature man. Able also to bridle the whole body. Indeed, better translation would be, now if we put bits in horses. He's comparing this. If we put bits in horses' mouths, that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body... Look also at ships, although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. James is making the point here, we have bodies. If we're perfect, if we're not going to stumble, if we're mature, we're not going to stumble in our words. And our words, our tongue will direct our life. Just like a bridle directs a horse, just like a tiller dri- um, drives and, and directs a ship. Wherever you point it, that's where it's going to go. Your mouth does the same thing for you. Proof of it, go to Romans chapter 10, and this is, this is all review. and I'm going to try to get through it quickly, although I'm not doing a good job so far. Romans chapter 10, this is Paul, verse 1. says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel... Is that they may be saved? For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. This is where a minute ago I, I, I mentioned about people like Oprah, Oprah, who um, have faith and they're they're spiritual. They have a zeal to, to, for God, but it's not according to knowledge. You need to. That's why. And I do I, I'm not going to argue theology with very many people. Because I also realized that, I said a minute ago, you don't have to have a lot of theology, correct theology to get saved. Remember, the first century church didn't have the New Testament at all. And thousands of people got saved. They they completely upended the Roman Empire with no part, none, none of the New Testament. They had some really screwy theological stances in some of the churches. They got off. Now, that's not good. But it's also, we don't have to have our theology perfect to get saved and to walk in God's blessings. Thank God we don't have to have our theology perfect. If we had to have our theology perfect, guess what? Ain't none of us going to make it. Because none of us have perfect theology. Well, I'm close. But most of you, I I got my doubts. No, you can have a zeal, but if you're not believing correctly, it's not going to benefit you. Verse 2, or excuse me, verse 3. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. That is the essential uh, problem right there, especially for people who say, I'm spiritual. They're trying to establish their own righteousness. Verse 4 says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That's the key right there. Paul sets the boundaries. You cannot establish your own righteousness. You have to accept God's righteousness. And it only comes by faith. Which means you may not see a whole lot of evidence, especially when you first start. I know people, I had a friend, he was a druggie. Big time druggie. He got saved, the desire for drugs left him immediately. I mean, instantly they left. I've had other friends got just as saved, were just as committed to the Word, and they struggled for years to put away some of the, the, the addictions and habits they had developed as unbel- when they were not saved. What's the difference? I have no idea. I really don't. I don't know why some people, certain sins just drop off and they never hold a temptation, and others, they just have to struggle and struggle and walk by faith. But the, the difference is, you have to, Exert your faith either way. When you get saved, God will take you where you are, not where you want to be. And you start growing from that point. But you're growing by faith. And then, um, excuse me, verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. If you want to establish your own righteousness, it's very easy. Just live the perfect life. Never make a mistake, never fall, never sin. And the problem is, none of us have ever done it. Only one man's ever succeeded in that, and it's not me. Verse 6, But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Notice, the righteousness of faith speaks. They're using words. This is what it says. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. What he's saying there is you speak, but he's he's giving you examples. He's saying, first of all, you're not going to boss God. You're not going to, to, to draw God down from heaven or pull him up from hell. You're going to believe what His word says, you're going to speak His word, but don't think you're going to tell God, this is what you're going to do, God. I mean, when you just think about that for a half a second, you, you need to re- I mean, it's just obvious. If He's God and you're not, then how are you going to boss Him? It Doesn't work. That's the negative side. Verse 8 starts the positive side. What does it say? It says, The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. For us, it's talking about the, the Bible. It is, we have this word. Peter says, we have the prophetic word made more sure. Why? Because it stood the test of time. The canon is closed. There have been books that didn't make the canon of Scripture. The ones we have, pretty much they did it because they have been proven over the ages that this is really the communicated word of God. And if it's God speaking, we need to listen. Now verse nine, this is what we speak. And this is starting about this is talking really about the, um, the initial phase. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's how you get into it. And and the rule is, this is the Genesis rule. If if you see an event happen in the book of Genesis, that's the progenitor. That's how the first event happened, and then on through Scripture. If you see an event happen, how it took place and the principles engaged in its first occurrence will more than likely, there may be some exceptions, but they're rare, that's more than likely how a similar event will happen later. Well, to get saved, we have to believe with our heart and confess with our mouth that God has raised Jesus from the dead. That's what brings us salvation. It's as simple as that. And when it says believe, it's not believing in that as a fact. It's believing in that, that that is the saving power of God to me. And when we declare that with our mouths, salvation becomes, essentially becomes ours. Verse 10 says, For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. It's a two-part deal. You have to believe in your heart, and then you have to declare it publicly. Verse 11, For the Scripture says, Whoever believes on Him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord overall, is rich to all who call upon Him. Notice, God's riches are to those that call Him call on him not because of their natural standing for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved this is ours if it's available to everyone in the world but it's only materialized it's only appropriated if you declare it it's the same way you all could you all could raise a collection you come up with a million dollars and you put a million dollars in my bank account. Nobody tells me about it, I don't get any statements. All I've got is what I know is in my bank account. I'm not going to be writing any checks past what I think my balance is. But if you tell me I've put a million dollars in your bank account and I believe literally that you put it there, I can start writing the checks with confidence that the bank will transfer the money and do whatever that I need that money to do. But it comes down, do I believe you first? Do I believe that the finances and the the funds are there, but I can believe it all day and all night if I never write the check, the bill doesn't get paid? I have to believe in my heart, but then I have to write the check, that's my confession, that's what I say. And it works in every area of your life, just like it works how you got saved. You got saved by declaring it, salvation, in fact, you look in the New Testament and the Gospels, most of the places where it talks about healed, it's using the Greek word sozo. The Greek word sozo is what gets translated here in in Romans for salvation. It's soterion. It means saved, healed, delivered, health. It's translated, all of those are translated from that one little word. When you got saved, you also got healed. When you got saved, you also got delivered. But are you going to declare that that's how it is in your life? Hebrews 11.3, we already referred to Hebrews 11.1. 1. Hebrews 11.3, by faith we understand that the worlds or the ages were framed by the word of God. So that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. We've gone over this before. It's the, the, the faith there that they're talking about is the faith of the elders. They're going to go through some of them in this Heroes of Faith in the rest of chapter 11. They framed, they designed, and operated in their world by what they said. God said, this is how it will be. They agreed with it, and that's how it was. It wasn't that they lived it perfectly. They didn't. If you go through and read the patriarchs, man, they were were as big a mess as we are, in some cases a lot more of a mess than we are. And yet they took that word that God gave them and they just kept applying it and kept applying it and kept declaring it, kept walking it out. And they made progress and they framed their entire life on one word from God. And yet we've got the entire New Testament, the entire Old Testament. And sometimes we we throw our hands up and say, God, why is life so hard? Well, life's always hard. But at least we, we need if we'll use our weapons, the weapons of our warfare, if we will start declaring what God said about our lives, we'll see that hardness change. In the midst of harshness and hardness, we can progress. Now let's look at the baptisms. First one was, is the new birth. And we started at 1 Corinthians 12, 13, where Paul said this, for by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. The first baptism we looked at is this baptism into the body of Christ. We saw in, in, in the book of Revelation, it says, let he who has ears to hear, hear, meaning it's a choice. You have to have, you have to be inclined to believe God's word to hear God's word. But then he also, John, in several places in the book of Revelation, to the different messages to the churches, says that it's to him who overcomes will these blessings be deposited. But thankfully, 1 John 5.5 5 says, Who is he who overcomes the world? It's the same John that wrote about those, those messages to the seven churches, who says, If you are an overcomer, you'll get these things. Well, he says here, who is... The, the the person that overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And I bring that out because I've had Christians for years tell me, but I'm not an overcomer. I'm struggling with this and struggling with that and struggling with this other. Well, welcome to the club. Until your heart quits beating, you are going to struggle. You're going to struggle against circumstances. You're going to struggle against sin. Now, hopefully... When you're 30 years into your Christian walk, you're not struggling with the same sin that you struggled with the day after you got saved. But my experience is, the farther I walk, the narrower Jesus requires my walk. Things that I could do out of ignorance back then, I can't do now because I know better. And He expects me to walk closer to that center line. The difference is, um, um, you look at somebody when they first get a driver's license. I remember the first time my dad let me take the farm truck and to get to one of our fields we had to drive down the county road and cut off in a lane. And then, you know, it was a long, you couldn't just get there from here. You had to go way around. Well, I'm out by myself and I got the pickup truck and I'm on the road. Man, you can, you know, we're I mean, we're so far back off the road. But we didn't have asphalt. I don't even know, they still have asphalt. It was rock roads. Well you get a pickup truck with that light rear end, man you can, you can spin some tires. And I had a cloud of dust, I know my dad was thinking I'll kill that boy if he blows that motor up, because I was burning, I was spinning those tires, I was having a ball. But my best was zigzagging everywhere. I had a hard time keeping that car. I watched, um, I think it was Jim put a thing on Facebook, um, no, I take that back. It was Danny Bogart put it on Facebook. And it was a video of one of the president's drivers driving the presidential limousine, 12,000 pounds, 800 horsepower engine. He's sitting on a, on a closed track, and he puts this thing in reverse, and he's driving this huge 12,000 pound limousine backwards around this track at 60 and 70 miles an hour. And I'm thinking, how in the world do you learn how to do that? Well, I have a feeling they gave him a smaller car and made him practice before they gave him that big behemoth. But this guy, I mean, he made like eight, eight laps around this track backwards. Smoking the tires, doing things, that I'm looking, I'm amazed. I'm thinking, I can't, I can't make my car do those things. And yet he was doing it just like an expert because he was an expert. Well, that's a difference between me and the pickup truck on the first day I got to drive by myself and an expert. God expects me, now maybe not actually driving a a vehicle like that, but he expects me to have a lot more skills in my driving today than I did when I first got my license. He expects me to walk much closer to and much more narrow in my lifestyle to what His Word demands of me today than He did when I was saved 58 years ago. Amen? We have to, but, but no matter where you are on that, on that scale or in that walk, you are still an overcomer. You became an overcomer when you got saved and you will stay an overcomer until the day you die. It's a positional truth, not an actual, I've got I to live the perfect life and be the perfect human being to be an overcomer. That's not the point. The point is, are you saved or not saved? But Paul tells us in Galatians 2.20, this is the cost though. It's not just believing that Jesus came and died and, and forgave my sins. It's surrendering to that. Paul said it here. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Paul just says right there, my life is zero. My desires are zero. Nothing that I want, nothing that I desire, nothing that, 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 that about my natural life has any value anymore. My, my mindset has to be I only live for Christ. Because he goes on and says, the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If he gave himself for me, then I owe him. This is the the law of of a blood covenant. Whatever the person I'm in covenant with gave up, I have to be willing to give up an equal share of that. I can't possibly match what Jesus did. So I'm all in. To use a poker term, if you've ever watched, you know, and it's hard to flip through, even flip through the channels and not see this Texas Hold'em poker tournaments. At some point, people in that table, somebody will say, I'm all in. They take all their chips and they push them to the middle. And they're betting everything they have that i got the better hand than you have. Well, I know Jesus has the better hand. But I need to take all my chips and shove them to the middle and say, I'm trusting you, Lord. I'm all in. Everything I've got is yours. I don't own anything. My house is not mine. My car is not mine. My life is not mine. My career is not mine. Nothing. I have nothing. Jesus has it all. Why? Because he gave it all. And I have to do my best to match it. Now the great thing is when I do that, he turns around and says, Okay, I'm going to bless your socks off. You gave up. He told the disciples in, in the passage about the rich young ruler. You know, Everybody looks at that and says, see, a rich man can't get saved. No, that wasn't the point. Jesus pointed out that his love for his riches to point out that he hadn't kept all of the law like he thought he had kept all of the law because he still had covetousness in his heart. He coveted all that wealth. And then when the disciples said, Lord, if a rich man can't get saved, how are we going to get saved? Because a lot of them were rich. And he said, guys, you can't give up home or family or anything else. That I won't repay you a hundredfold in this life. In this life. Plus eternal life. Why would I not be willing to give up anything and everything if he said, put all your chips in there, I'm going to bring them back a hundredfold. And then, when you die, you get to live with me. Forever. That's a... I mean... I used to play poker. I literally would get sick to my stomach if they got past, you know, if I got more than 30 cents in the pot. I'd get so nervous I wanted to throw up. I'm losing money that I worked hard to get. I'm tight when it comes to that. But I'll make that bet. If you guarantee me a hundredfold return in this life plus eternal life, I'd be a fool not to take that deal. I'll take it every day and twice on Sunday. Now, the second baptism, first one was getting baptized into Christ's body. Second one is water baptism. And I'm going to take them in the proper order. We, I reversed them last time. But in Romans, you're in Romans, I think we're in Romans 10. Go back to Romans chapter 6. And in Romans 6, we're going to start in verse 1. And we're going to, I'm going to read through these and just hit a couple of highlights. Verse 1 says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? He's, he's countering the argument that, that was made in chapter 5, that if, if God is glorified when His grace is poured out, and His grace is poured out when I sin, then I ought to sin a lot so that God's grace is, sin, is poured out a lot so that God will be glorified. And basically his response was, are you stupid? That's the Roberts translation. So verse 1, he, he's, he's saying, all right, what are we going to do with that? Shall I continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. Or, Robert's translation, you've got to really be dumb to believe that. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? That's the key phrase of that verse. We died to sin, so we should, not, we should no longer live in it. Well, if I died to sin, how can I possibly live in sin? Because your brain hasn't figured out that you're dead to sin yet. That's that sanctification process. If you remember months ago, we talked about Mr. Schofield. Said that, that, that salvation is in three tenths. We have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. I have been saved in my spirit. I will be saved physically. I'll get a brand new body when Jesus comes back. I'm looking forward to that one. I, that today would be a good day for that. But in between that new birth experience and that new body, I've got progressive salvation, which is the process of sanctification. I need to, to convince myself that I'm dead to sin. I can't, I can't live in sin anymore. And how do you know you're living in sin? Anytime fear rules you instead of faith. Anytime you walk in the bathroom and you say, Oh Lord, I just hope somebody shoots me. I want to die. I'm so sick. Well, if that's your declaration, then you're, in, you're living in fear and you're, you're not confessing your faith. You're not declaring what God's word says about you. And suddenly you're living in sin. Now that does not, don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying it's a sin to get sick. What I'm saying is how you react to sickness can either be in faith or be in, in unbelief. And anytime you get in unbelief, that is sin. But it's also, you have to understand that God God judges that by your maturity level. And for those that are immature, or those that just simply, some it's not immaturity, they've just chosen to believe. There are the secessionists out there, when the last apostle died, there's no more miracles, God is not showing up on the earth, he's not doing stuff today. Everything's intellectual. You get get saved by reading the Bible, having an intellectual understanding, and intellectually accepting what Christ does, and it's an inward work, and you're just going to live by your wits and the best you can get along, and hopefully the doctors can help you because you you can't believe for God to heal you, because he doesn't do that anymore. Well, that's not how I read the Bible. And if you want to believe that, that's fine, but I'll tell you, you, you will get what you believe. Those, but the, the, the amazing part is, I've had some people tell me, Oh, I'm, I'm especially with, with, with sickness, I'm suffering for Jesus. And it's like, Okay. Well, what are you doing about your sickness? Well, I'm going to the doctor later, get some medicine. Now, wait a minute. If God wants you to have this sickness, and He's going to get glory out of this sickness, and this is His will, why would you go to the doctor and get out of God's will? You need to stay sick just as long as you can and suffer just as much as you can so God will get lots of glory. That's just the same as Paul saying, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Are you stupid? Now, that doesn't mean that every time you declare, I'm healed and you feel sick, that you're going to get an instantaneous healing. But you are called to fight the fight. You are called to resist sickness. You're called to resist sin. That's the whole problem with, with the modern... Church, And I'm, I'm not including all of the churches, but there is a certain set of churches today that they want to do away with sin. Homosexuality is not a sin. Drunkenness is not a sin. Getting high on drugs is not a sin. Because if we, if we declare those sins, then we have to resist them. And this is how God made me, and I don't want to have to resist that. I just want to go with the flow. Well, you can go with the flow, and you're going to reap from your sin. The whole point of the Christian life is to live a life of resistance and opposition. Sin is trying to drag you this way and righteousness is taking you this way and you're fighting to go the way of righteousness. And it is a fight and it's a struggle. It's the reason when, when God renamed Jacob, He named him Israel. The name Israel means struggle. Jacob wasn't perfect, but he did learn, I'm not doing what I used to do, I'm struggling to follow God. Well, we have that same struggle. Now, verse 3. It said, We who died to sin, live any, shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Therefore we were buried with Him through baptism in the death. This is water baptism. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. That's the point. The point isn't that we died with Him so much as that we were resurrected with Him and now we need to walk in that newness of life. Our emphasis is, is thank God for the death of Jesus and I thank God that I did die with Him. But I don't want to stay there. I want to resurrect to new life. And I'm going to walk in that newness of life. Verse 5, For if we have been united together in the likeness of His death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of His resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with Him, that the body of sin might be done away with. Or better translation, might be made powerless. It's not that, that your body of sin, your fleshly body has sin caught up in it. We have the curse of the fall in your flesh because your flesh is made up of atoms and molecules that came out of the earth. You die and just leave a body laying out in a field, it's going to go right back to the dirt that it came from. And ten years from now, you won't be able to tell there was a body there. You'll just see richer soil because those, those molecules will go back into the soil. That soil has the curse of the fall in it. Your body has the curse of the fall in it. That's why when, we, when Jesus comes back, He gives us a brand new body made out of stuff that has no curse on it. That's why it, it'll live forever. That's why I'm looking forward to it. But now we have to know. N- notice verse, the very first part of verse 6. Knowing this. This thing starts with knowledge. I have to know that my old man was crucified because sin no longer has power over me. Why? So that I should no longer be a slave of sin. But he who has died has been freed from sin. For now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him, knowing that Christ, Christ having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over Him. And this is the key. For the death that He died, He died to sin once For all, But the life that he lives, he lives to God. And that's what we're called to do. He said it right up there in verse 2. How shall we who died to sin live in it any longer? If Christ died to sin, once for all, he's never going to die again. He's never going to be subject to death again. And remember, the death that he died, he died voluntarily. The Romans did not kill him. The Jews did not kill him. He accepted death. There's a big difference between someone killing you and you saying, I will allow death to take me. And in doing that, he died so that he might conquer sin. And when he was resurrected, he now lives to the Father. His whole life is dedicated to doing the Father's will. Verse 11, Likewise, in the same way that Jesus did this to the Father, you also reckon, consider. It's a verb. It's in the present tense, it means a continual action. Con, continue to reckon, continue to, to consider, continue to think about, continue to say. Reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God and to Christ Jesus our Lord. That's where our words come in. I have to continually. Water baptism that we did last week, it's great. We should do it. It's a proclamation on one, on, on, in one sense. It's a proclamation to the world. But even more than that, it's a continuing proclamation to myself. I remember, I've been baptized twice, I got baptized at 8 years old right after I got saved, First Baptist Church in Jeffersontown, Kentucky. I remember the church, I can see it right now, I remember uh, Brother Straney taking me up there and baptizing me in that pool. And I and I remember when I came, after I went out and lived for the world for a number of years, when I came back and got serious about being a Christian, I had... Um, um, All I can think now is Brother Straney. Um, Pastor Hoffman baptized me at at, um, Covenant Christian Church in Jeffersonville. Why? Because I was taking a new direction. Same way we saw Jesus was baptized. It wasn't for the remission of sins. He had no sins. But he was baptized because he was making a change in his life. He had been the perfect man, but he'd been a dutiful son to his father and his mother, but he was about to step out into ministry, and he was water baptized, and when he came out, he was anointed. This water baptism is not only a a, a declaration to the world, but it's a declaration to myself. When I start struggling, I have to look back and say, no, 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 no. I died with Christ when I went under that water, and I've been raised to newness of life. It's It's a place, it's a marker for me. And I've had people say, Well, do you know when you got saved? I don't know the date. Somewhere it's recorded. I have it at home. But I do remember where I was. I was at church camp. I can still see the pavilion. I have no idea what the guy preached on. I was eight years old. But I went forward, said, Yes, I want to get saved. Next week I went before my church and said, Yes, I want to get saved. And then I got baptized. I had eight year old faith. Didn't get me very far. But when I came back at at 28, 20 years later, I came back, I got adult faith. And I started living that out. But both of those things were marked with water baptism. And I can go back and see that. I, I may not understand everything that happened, but I understand that I died and I was resurrected on those two occasions. One was the first time I got saved. The second was I have messed my life up and this is my marker. Right here, this is my marker. I'm changing my life. And I did it before my church. I did it before the world. But even more important, I did it so right here between my own ears. When I start thinking, man, you are one worthless dude. And believe me, I have those thoughts. If you don't, God love you, I would love to live your life. Because I have them often. If you don't think I feel overwhelmed... I don't think that, that, that there is no way that, that I'm a sinner and there's no way I can do what God's called me to do. Then you're living in a fantasy world. I struggle just as much as you do and maybe in some ways more. But I have to grab when I get that way. In fact, I told my wife, we had a big long discussion one night. Lord have mercy, I'm, if you know anything about me, 8.30, I'm, I'm looking for a bed to lay down on. 9 o'clock, I'm asleep. We're talking at 12.30 at night. I'm a zombie. But I, I mean, in the midst of this, discuss, this discussion between us, I looked at her and I said, thank you for not giving up on me. Because I'll tell you, I had given up on myself. I was ready to quit. I was ready to quit not only the ministry, I was ready to quit being a Christian. I'm just, forget it, it doesn't work, I can't do this anymore. And my wife did what good wives do. She grabbed me by the ears and said, straighten up, buster. And, you know, and I told her. I was honest. Thank you for not giving up on me. Well, that's part of what the the husband and wife do for one another. We've said for years, God help us if we ever both get down at the same time. Because there'll be no, no one to pull either one of us out. But the practice normally has been when I get down, she's up. And she'll pull me out of that well. And when she gets down, I'm up and I'll pull her out of the well. But we have to, at some point, you have to do that with yourself. Even that night, I realized at some point, this is stupid. (laughs) I'm not a quitter and I'm not quitting. I felt like quitting three hours before. I had quit in my mind. But it's like, no, I'm not doing this. I'm not going to let the devil win. I lived for him for 10 years out in the world. That was miserable. Why in the world would I want to go back to that? I learned that lesson. I had the proverbial flat forehead. You know, you get that from running into the same brick wall every day for 10 years. It'll flatten your forehead. Well, eventually you learn. And then the, the, well, let me finish up here. Verse 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. I love Barclay's translation of that. He says, for sin will not lord it over you. Sin cannot lord over you. Even when you sin, that's when you need to have the most faith. And again, the farther you walk with Jesus, the smaller the thing is that sin to you. May not be a huge one that you like you dealt with when you first got saved. It may only be a little misstep, but God will call you on it. And if you're smart, you'll you'll start listening to that. And then the third one we got to was the baptism in the Spirit, and this is the one where we went back and we looked at Jesus getting baptized. And he got baptized not because he was for the remission of sins, but because he had a change in his life. He's getting ready to step into his ministry. And we we looked. I'm not going to go back. You can go back and that's on on the website. You can go there and get the podcast and listen to all the details. But really what we focused in on and what I want to focus in on is the the gifts of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1 through 5. This is Paul saying, this is what's important. This is what that baptism of the Spirit does. And let me just say this as a good charismatic. and, And I can say with Paul, I speak in tongues more than you all. I come in here, there are times when I come here and I pray in the Spirit for hours at a time. Because I just don't know how else to pray. And so I just pray until God tells me something to pray out in English. And I'll pray and pray and pray in tongues. I do it all the time. But we get so caught up in equating the baptism of the Spirit with tongues, and I think they are connected, that that's all we see. But being baptized in the Spirit is so much more than just speaking in tongues. Paul says it right here. Notice verse 1. He says, Pursue love, desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you prophesy. He's talking about what you pursue, what you desire, and especially to prophesy. And literally, he tells us why. Verse 2. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God, for no one understands him. However, in the Spirit, he speaks mysteries. I've seen a couple of translations that say he speaks divine mysteries. You're speaking a heavenly language that you may not even know what you're saying, but God knows. And when you have no, other, no doubt or, or no concept of how you ought to pray, that's a great way to pray. But it's not the only thing. Look at verse 3. But he who prophesies speaks edification, exhortation, and comfort to men. When I pray in tongues, I'm praying to God. And sometimes God will give me the interpretation for what I need. He'll say, I'll finally get it in my head. This is how I need to pray over this situation. But when I prophesy, I'm speaking to men. And what I do is I edify. Literally, that means to build a house. means to add a second floor to a a one-floor or a one-story building. I'm building people up. I'm exhorting them. That's paraclesis. It means I'm taking on the role of the Holy Spirit. I come alongside and I encourage. I speak courage into their life. It's just like the coaches you've, we, we've all had at one time, if you've been involved in sports. They, I, I love, um, I think it's Giants, the one Christian movie about the football team. And they have the guy who, he's kind of a little bit of a slacker, and he tells him they put a blindfold on him and, and put a kid on his back and they're going to have him do this crawl. And he says, how far do you think you can go? He said, I can go 20 yards. Well, I can't go any farther than that though. And he says, well, puts a blindfold on so he can't see where he's going. He puts a kid on his back and he said, okay, now start crawling. And the coach is going along encouraging him, don't stop, don't stop, don't stop. You can do this. you got more in you. You've got more in you. And when the kid finally stops, he takes the blindfold off. He's gone a hundred yards. Five times farther than he thought he was capable of doing. If you go and you watch the special forces training, that's exactly what they do. They will test you physically to the limit to prove that your limits are much farther out than you think they are. Because if you think this is as far as I can go, that's as far as you will go. Unless somebody convinces you, no, you can go farther. And it may take some mental toughness to get that farther. That's what exhortation does. It's encouraging people, don't give up. That's exactly what Gina did for me the other night. I, I expressed that she grabbed my ears and said, you know, buck up, buddy. Well, it was a little more gentle than that. But that's, that's exhortation. You know, sometimes it's, and, and it depends on the person you're dealing with. Sometimes they, you know, they need, just need a good swift kick in the butt. Sometimes they need somebody to come along and say, you you can do this. You have the capacity to make this work. And then comfort is, you come along and it literally it's it's paramythia. Para means to come alongside. Mythia is where we get the word for myth. It means to tell a story. You come along and you, you talk to them and you tell them, a story of their life, you say, this is what God wants for you, and this is how this is going to end. Paul says it in in Ephesians chapter 6 where he's talking about the armor of God. He says, when you've done all to stand, stand therefore, and then he goes into the armor. That stand therefore, when you've done all to stand, just stand. We look at that and and we look at that and we think, well, that's just saying when you've done everything you know to do, you're just going to have to stand there and tough it out. No, that's not what that means. Paul's saying, when you've done all to stand, then stand. The implication is when you've done all to stand, you're going to be standing at the end of this fight. When this thing's over, your opponent's committee be on the ground, and that's your circumstances, feelings, sickness, disease, the devil, you, whatever's opposing you. When this fight is done, you're going to be standing the victor because Jesus has already conquered this and you're going to be able to walk it out. That's comfort. That's telling you you are a winner and you are going to do this. And you can can make it. Let's go on. Verse 4. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. I wish you all spoke with tongues. That, that, ver- that, that portion of verse right there, for non Pentecostals, charismatics, it's like this is Paul. This is the Holy Spirit thinking through Paul or speaking through Paul. I wish you all spoke with tongues. Well, I know why people reject it. A lot of times they're afraid of it, they don't understand it. Well, dear Lord, if I only operated things that I understood, I'd certainly never turn my TV on. I probably wouldn't get in a car. There are a lot of things. I certainly would never crawl in an airplane, and I love to fly. But, you know, if you've got, if, so what if you don't understand it? Is, in the, is it in the Bible? But even more that you prophesied, for he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless indeed he interprets that the church may receive edification. What he's saying is we need to concentrate on building each other up. He's not saying that, that it's a binary choice. You either get tongues or prophecy. No, you ought to have both. And if you're going to prophesy, praying in tongues will help you prophesy. The ultimate end of any of it though is, it, it, uh, uh, Jude said it. He said, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, praying in tongues. The whole point of me praying in tongues and and praying out mysteries to God is to build myself up so that I can help build others up. It's not to make myself a spiritual giant. It's to be able to help somebody. And then Ephesians 4. because We're talking about the baptism of the Spirit. This is the anointing. How God anoints you, the same way He anointed Jesus. We're going to start in verse 15. And this is Paul encouraging us to to walk in unity in chapter 4. He talks about the spiritual gifts. And in verse 15 he comes back to speaking. He says, Speak the truth in love, that we may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. That is the whole point of everything we we say. To help myself grow up and then help others grow up. And then verse 16 from the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causing growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Everything we do, but especially speaking the truth in love is to grow up the body of Christ because you may think you're a zero in the body of Christ, but it says right there that that we may knit together by what Every joint supplies. If you're a part of the body, you have something to give to the body. And if you don't give it, the body won't get it. And we're going to be deficient. Verse 17 This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. Get out of your head and get into the Bible having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who, being past feelings, have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness, but you have not so learned Christ. If indeed you have heard Him and have been taught by Him as the truth is in Jesus... And this is the key right here, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust. and this is where I was heading, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. That, that word there, renewed, it's, it's, again, it's in the present tense, which means it's a repetitive motion or a repetitive action. A better trans, way to translate that is to be being renewed continually be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. This is similar to the verse we looked at last week about working out your own salvation. You take what God's put on the inside of you and you work it to the outside. You take that salvation, what God said, this is yours. And you say, okay, I'm going to live that way. I'm going to act that way. I don't know how, but God will help me. Because it's His idea, it's not my idea. And then he says, here, here's a real challenge for some of us. Therefore put away lying. Let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are all members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. <laughs> Try that one. It's easy to get angry. It's not very easy to get angry and not sin. That's where I say the the best way to be angry and not sin is obey my Father's 12th commandment. Shut thy mouth. When you are angry, that is the worst time to open your mouth and start talking. Because I can just, no, I can't, it's not just about, I can guarantee it. You're going to say something that you're going to wish you hadn't said later on. And once those words are out there, You can ask forgiveness, but you can't take them back. And believe me, you can say things in 30 seconds that can never be repaired when it comes to relationships. I've seen, I have in my own life, I I had a very special relationship, and I, I saw it destroyed by words in 30 seconds. 30 seconds. And it created a gulf that will never be fixed. It will not. It's not that God cannot fix it, but it will not get fixed. Because it proved to me where this person was and where I was, and I will never walk in relationship with that person again. Because it's unsafe. I walked away and I will stay away forever. Pray God they get saved. Pray God that God blesses them. But it'll have to be apart from me. 30 seconds. That's all it took. I don't want to be the one that... that does that to a relationship. So sometimes you just need to not say anything. Mama's rules, if you can't say something good about somebody, don't say anything at all. Mama was right. Thank you so much for joining us today. If this message has blessed you, we invite you to visit us in person at the corner of Highway 31 South and Southport Road, Indianapolis, Indiana or visit us online at FCCIndianapolis.com